0: So tonight, um, we're kicking off a new series and if you have never been here before, um, the idea behind like a series is that we can get a little deeper if like we have more time. So, I mean like you don't want to hear it all at once, I know that for sure. Um, but the reality is of course, we connect our, the series, like the idea for the next four weeks, we'll be talking about this, this one kind of concept. But the idea is not that you just get to talk about it here at mass, but also that you get to be part of, if you want to, be part of like a Bible study, be part of a small group. We put like small group discussion questions online when we post the homily. We also post these these small small group discussion questions. You know, there's only forty Catholic Bible studies on campus here, and all of them are want you to be part of their thing. So like just think about it. Whatever, no big deal. Um, but today's the first the first step. Today is part one of this new series. And basically, it's it's called the one and only. And the idea behind the one and only be the, the idea behind one and only is this: in as human beings, we often, we all want to be that one and only. Like we have this sense of like we have one and only life. We sometimes feel lost. We think, we think maybe we're sometimes we feel like we're one among many, but we're called to be that one and only one of us. We think our problems are so unique to us. We're the one and only, but actually our problems are not just to us. They're universal problems. We're going to talk about these in the weeks to come. But we realize, of course, when we come to Mass, like it's not a, that's, that sounds like a lot about us, and it kind of is a lot about us. But when we come to Mass, like the beginning and the end of it is not about us. The beginning and the end of what we do here, it's about Jesus. So tonight we're going to talk about Jesus as the one and only. Because I think this, if you're anything like me and you live in this culture, which we all do, is that Jesus, for a lot of people in our culture, he's not the one and only. He's one among many. Maybe you were raised in in the church, and if you're raised in the church, your priest priest or your teacher or your parents said, Jesus, he's, he's the one and only. And then you got here, or you... Talk to other people he met people from different cultures and they said, actually Jesus he's, he's, he's not the one and only, He's one among many, that he's not the only way to truth. He's one among many ways to truth that he's not one the one and only founder of a religion, he's one among many founders of religion and we can think that maybe Jesus isn't really the one and only maybe he's just one among many. What, what would we say to that? The big question is what would we say to that? Like, for example, if after mass today, someone, were to, your roommate, your housemate, your whoever, were to say, okay, so you went to Mass tonight. Yeah, I went to Mass tonight. Okay, so why are you a Christian? Would you be able to give him a reason? Like, here is why I'm a Christian. You believe Jesus is the one and only. I do, why? You know, it's funny because in today's Gospel, there's a big question, Mark chapter eight, that, that uh, Jesus says, asks the question. He says, who do, who do you say that I am? Now, you might, you might, if your roommate asks you that question or roommate asks you, like, why are you a Christian? You might actually have the answer, I, don't, I really don't know. <laughs> that, that could be a legitimate answer. Say, actually, I'm not sure. I don't know why I go to Mass. I'm not sure why I'm a Christian. I don't know what I'd say if someone asked me, who do you say that Jesus is? No, that is a legitimate answer if you don't know, just so you know. That if you don't know why, I don't know is a good answer. Um, years ago, you, you, know, you know the story of when O.J. Simpson was arrested. Remember, the, remember who O.J. Simpson was, right? Okay, so... <laughs> I'm like, I was a high school, I think, but um, so when O.J. Simpson was on trial for the alleged murder of his wife and of their house guest, it was everywhere. You could not go anywhere and not hear about the O.J. Simpson trial. In fact, I think, I, I'm not sure about this, but I think that they started 24-hour court TV. They, they created a news channel based off of people wanting to know more and more about the O.J. Simpson trial. So, I mean, I kind of knew what was going on because I read the newspapers occasionally or I'd listen to the news occasionally and I read the tabloids like every day religiously. But like this recognition of like at the end of it, they said he's not guilty. And everyone, if you were having a conversation with them, they would ask you this question. Well, what do you think? you think he was guilty or not? And my answer was always, I I don't know. People would always say, yeah, but you, you have to have an opinion on it. And the reality, I was like, no, I didn't watch the court case. I don't know all of the evidence. I don't know if he was guilty or not. No, no, you, you need to have an opinion. Here's the deal. If you don't have any evidence, if you don't have a reason for believing something, you ought not to have an opinion. And if you do have an opinion, you ought not to inflict that on everyone else. because Unless you have a reason to believe it. And I was like, I, I don't know if he was guilty. I don't know if he's innocent. Why? Because I don't know the evidence. If you don't have a reason, so why are you a Christian? It's okay to say, I don't know. But I think a lot of times we might not say anything, not because we don't know, but because we're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of, like, I might get the evidence wrong. I might get the conclusion wrong. I don't. And so what happens is this. We come to mass and we hold on to our Christianity. but We hold on to our Catholicism lightly and loosely. Because like, I'll go to mass. Because it seems like a thing like a decent human being would do. But I'm not. I'm not going to commit my whole life to this kind of thing because who knows? Maybe I'm going to talk to someone and they're going to say they're going to show me that I'm I'm just I'm wrong. I mean, this this. It's one of those kind of situations that kind of happened to me when I got to college. I talked to people and these people. <laughs> I was taken. I was kind of blindsided because I went to a Catholic college and so I'm like I'm talking to these you know nuns and these brothers and these priests and these PhDs and they're like you know everything you believe when you were growing up. I'm like yes and they're like it's false. I'm like what? Like, t- why did you do that to me? And I think it's because they're mean people. But the reality, of course, is that when I found out more, I realized, no, no, no. I had a lot of good reasons. They were incorrect. They were the ones who were wrong. Even the people with... P- do you know people with PhDs can actually be wrong? I know this is a shock, but it's absolutely true. you know that priests can be... Other priests can be wrong? <laughs> I mean, this is... Just kidding. This is actually the truth. So... You might have been, been in that case where he's like, why would you believe this? Why would you be a Christian? Say, I don't know why, or I don't want to be wrong, because maybe you had a conversation with someone, like I've had a conversation with people who said, well, have you seen the movie Zeitgeist? Or have you seen, you know, Bill Maher's Religious? Because I don't know if you know about this, but Jesus, he's not one and only. He's one among many myths that, are, that exist out there. And if you've ever seen either of those two movies, you know that Bill Maher and the people who made Zeitgeist, they appeal to this thing and they say this, you might not realize this because you're a Christian and you're probably stupid. But you think Jesus is the one and only. He's actually one among many other pagan myths that have the exact same story. And Bill Maher said this. He said that you know that the Jesus myth, he says, was based off of the myth of the ancient Egyptian god Horus from around 1250 BC. And he goes through this list of all the connections between the ancient Egyptian god Horus and Jesus. They say, well, Horus had a virgin birth, so did Jesus that Horus was baptized by Anuf the baptizer, so was Jesus, by John the baptizer. That Horus walked on water, healed people, and so did Jesus. That Horus was crucified between two thieves, so was Jesus. That Horus resurrected from the dead, and so was Jesus. And they say, see, Jesus is not the one and only. He's one among many. And it's all based off of a myth. Now I think that's remarkable because I've talked to so many people who are like, I don't go to church anymore. How come? I watch Religulous and I say that's ridiculous because the reality, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I did some research in this. you know. All of those, those points, they come from a guy named Gerald Massey. Gerald Massey was an Englishman from not too long ago, hundred or so years ago. He was an amateur Egyptologist, and he was not a fan of Christ or Christianity. And in, in an effort, in like a crazy effort, to say that, no, the Jesus story, he's one among many. He is not the one and only. He made these, he created, he fabricated... These stories of Horus, because if you go through the ancient texts, there are no stories of Horus's virgin birth. There's actually a crazy story of how Horus was conceived, but it's church, so we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> there's no stories about Horus being baptized. There's no stories. There's stories about Horus almost dying, but him being healed, and it, that healing power overflowing to other people. But that's not the same thing as walking around touching people and healing them. Horus was not crucified. There's one, at least one image of Horus with his arms stretched out wide. That doesn't necessarily mean crucifixion and anyone who's ever watched a video by the band Creed knows that you can just stand with your arms wide open and that does not mean you're being crucified at this moment. Horus wasn't resurrected. His mother, Isis, was. And so you realize that at the end of this whole thing, Jesus is not just one among many. They base the story off of the myth of the Egyptian god Horus. That's just a bunch of Horus manure. <laughs> right? The thing, thing is this. Jesus, who he's not just one among many pagan gods. He's not just one among many myths. He's one and only true story. But the question is this. They say, who do people say that I am? Well, they say that you're Elijah. a question for all the Bible scholars here. What percentage of people who responded, some people say that you're Elijah, or were right? None. Right. Zero. None percent. None percent were right. How about, the, well, you were John the, they think that you're John, John the Baptist. How What percentage of people who said that are right? Zero. But when Peter said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, that's like the right answer. That Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, again, this is for the Bible scholars. You know this already. You know that when we say Jesus Christ, that Christ isn't his last name. That it's not like Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ. That Christ means anointed one. Messiah means the anointed one. They've been waiting for the anointed one. But here's a crazy thing is back in the day, Jesus was one among many anointed ones. They anointed kings, they anointed prophets, they anointed priests. And Jesus is the, but he's the anointed one. Why? Because he's the one and only anointed one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Again, this is evidence. Why do you believe what I believe? Because, I don't know, there's one person in history who's fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, that he actually is the anointed one. That he's not one among many, he's the one and only. Now you say, well, yeah, but a lot of people, a lot of people could fulfill those Old Testament prophecies. I mean, that seems to make sense, right? Like, what are the odds? You ever play a game, what are the odds? If you're ever a middle schooler at camp, you've played what are the odds? The idea behind what are the odds is this, if you walk up to someone with some kind of challenge, like um, what are the odds you eat this gross thing? What are the odds you do this you know, really embarrassing thing? And if the person doesn't want to do it, they pick a high number, like one in a thousand. And if they do want to do it, they pick a low number, like one in four. And then what you do is someone counts to three and you say this a number between one and a thousand between one and four at the same time And if you say the same number, then you have to go do that thing So we've actually had a middle school camp where this kid honestly He said what are the odds that I eat this used Band-Aid? Oh. And the person said oh he actually someone what are the odds you eat this used Band-Aid? And he said he wanted to do it. He's like one and two and Now I was I didn't see it. I wasn't part of it. I heard about it afterwards I do not condone this gross, but what are the odds? <laughs> Back to our story. What are the odds? that Jesus, that one person, would fulfill any Old Testament prophecy. So they've actually had people, you know, mathematicians, who have done the math on this. And the odds that one human being would fulfill even just eight, so let's make the small, low number, eight Old Testament prophecies. So what do you think the odds are that one human being would fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies in one person? The math comes out to this. The odds are one in one times 10 to the 17th power know what that is, if you don't know math, is one with 17 zeros behind it. He said, okay, that sounds like a large number, Father. It is a large number. <laughs> but I don't know what that means because I don't get it. Well, here's the deal. Here's a visual for you I heard about. If you took 1 times 10 to the 17th power number of Girl Scout Thin Mints. And I didn't want to use Thin Mints because I know what you're thinking of for the rest of math. But take 1 times 10 to the 17th power of Thin Mints. You would have enough Thin Mints to cover the entire state of Texas in Thin Mints two feet deep. That is a lot of cookies. (laughs) Now, now here's the deal. What are the odds? Take one Thin Mint out of that pile and lick all the chocolate off of the outside. (laughs) Try not to eat the rest. And fly a plane over Texas and drop out a Thin Mint randomly into the big pile. And then just go for a walk in Texas and at one point, at random, without looking, just bend down and pick up one thin mint. The odds of Jesus, one person, fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies are the same as the odds of picking up that one thin mint that's been licked of chocolate. That's incredible odds, right? Jesus didn't just fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies. Do you know that Jesus fulfills over 350 Old Testament prophecies? That he is actually, okay listen, why am I Christian? I don't know, but I don't, I don't know what's going on with this old book here. But here's the one guy who the odds were insurmountable and he fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies. That's good evidence. But the crazy thing is this. Jesus doesn't just claim to be one among many prophets, one among many messiahs, one among many Christs. Jesus goes further. And you know this, right? Jesus claims not just to be one among many religious religious founders. He claims to be God. I mean, I talk to people all the time who say, you know, I don't know if I can give my life to Christianity because I need to learn about other world religions. And I'd say, that's good to learn about other world religions. I have a ton of books about other world religions. I've taken classes on other world religions. That's great. But if you want to know if Christianity is true or false, you don't have to look at other world religions. You just have to look at Christianity because all of Christianity hangs on one claim. And that one claim is that Jesus doesn't just claim to be, have a revelation into God. Jesus doesn't claim to have an insight into God. Jesus claims, you know this, right? He claims to be God. He says, I'm not one among many religious founders. I am the one and only God. Now, my good friend C.S. Lewis, he wrote about this and, and he said, he's my buddy. He's my pal. He said this. He said, most people say this. Most people say about, about Jesus, they say that, listen, Jesus was a holy man, but he wasn't God. Or Jesus was a good person, but he wasn't God. Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't God. And C.S. Lewis points out, he says, that's the only thing you can't say about Jesus, that he was a good person but not God. He said, why? Because he claimed to be God. And so he runs through this. You have three options. One, if Jesus wasn't God and he knew he wasn't God, then what is he? He's a liar. He spent this, he based, he based his whole public career off of one massive lie. Okay, maybe he's a liar. If Jesus wasn't God and he didn't know he wasn't God, what is he? He's crazy. He's a lunatic. He's cuckoo for Cocoa puffs I think Because the reality, of course, is that if you look at the scriptures and say, maybe he's lying. Maybe he's lying the whole time. People who have been as started out as Jesus' enemies have read the Gospels, like, okay, he must have been lying. And they read the Gospels and the story they see is that this is not the picture of a liar, of a pathological liar. The great thing about being a pathological liar is you have a pathology, which means you kind of actually fit a profile. And the profile of pathological liars is that they are self-centered. They are self-involved. They're narcissistic. They're uncreative. They're all about themselves. And the picture you get of Jesus is the exact opposite. Here is someone who, even when he's tired, worn out, and just wants to leave, he sees someone who needs help and he goes and helps them. When he's backed into a corner, He's not stuck. He's incredibly creative and clever with his response. The picture you see in the Gospels of Jesus is not someone who fits the profile of a pathological liar. You see the profile of someone who's the exact opposite. So he doesn't sound, doesn't look like he's a liar. Maybe he's a lunatic. What what is it to be sane? Let's start there. To be sane is to be connected to reality. To be able to appreciate reality. This is true. I'm connected to this. So if I were to say, I'm a priest, that's a sane comment. If I were to say, I'm the best priest in the world, that is less sane. <laughs> it's kind of arrogant. I guess, yeah, I might be able to say I'm the best priest in the room, but that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> but if I were to say, um, everyone, just so you know, I am Pope Francis. So if I claim to be Pope Francis, and I actually thought I was Pope Francis, after a couple minutes of conversation, you'd say, I don't think this person is all connected to reality. And if I were to say, I'm actually Marie Antoinette, <laughs> I'd be even further disconnected from reality. And if I were to ultimately say, like, I just want to let you know you probably can't tell I'm a jelly donut. <laughs> and if I firmly believed, I really I'm convinced I'm a jelly donut. Seriously, do not eat me. What are you looking at me like that for? Like if I, I after 30 seconds of conversation, you'd be able to realize this person is not connected to reality. And yet, when people met Jesus, they were captivated by him. He wasn't just weird, he was sane, he was holy, he was different. And so if he's not a liar and he's not crazy, the only option we have is that he claimed to be God and he actually was God. But the remarkable thing is this. He's not one among many claimants to religion. He's the one and only God, the real God. But you'd say this. If, if Jesus walked into this room and he claimed to be God, what would you say? Okay. No, you would say, you'd say, prove it. So we think, though, we think back 2,000 years ago, though, those people were so dumb. Like, they were, lived way back when. They didn't understand anything. They didn't know how to program VCRs. They didn't know iPods. Like, they, were, they would have believed anyone who claimed to be God, but that's not true. Jesus walked into the room and he says, by the way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all of them said, oh, yeah, prove it. So Jesus makes it, does his miracles. But the greatest miracle of Jesus, and the thing that Christianity either rises or falls upon, is one huge miracle. Because Jesus died. Everyone dies. You all know that, right? Mortality rate for human beings hovering around 100%. If Jesus just died, he'd be one among many people who died. But what's the claim? That Jesus didn't just die, he also is one, the one and only, who conquered death. The one and only who died, but then rose from the dead. Now, you say, well, that's just a myth. That's just a story. The crazy thing is that there's actually evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. One, there was an empty tomb. I've seen it. There was no body in there. I can verify this. But even the day, you know, three days later, the day after that, they looked. There was an empty tomb. Second thing, there were eyewitnesses. What I mean by that is there were people who saw him die and then they saw him alive again. They saw him beaten to death. Three days later, they saw him with a transformed body that was so remarkably whole and so remarkably alive that they, were, they had to say he was dead and now he's alive. More than that, there weren't just one or two eyewitnesses because that'd be like, well, you could have gotten together and said, well, we're going to tell the story where Jesus rose from the dead. St. Paul, the very first account written down of, in scripture of the resurrection is in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says this. He says, I didn't just see him. At one point, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some of of whom have died though. Why did he say that? The reason he said that part, like most of whom are still alive, is because he knows that when you tell someone, to anyone, that someone conquered death and someone died and rose from the dead, and you are the only one they're talking to, they're going to say, hey, who else saw him? Well, there's 500 people. They live over there and they're still alive. You can actually talk to them because there were eyewitnesses who were still alive at the time of writing and telling the story. There's a guy, his name is um, A.N. Sherwin-White. A.N. Sherwin-White is a historian out of Oxford. And he's an expert in legends and myth. And he said this. He said, the genesis of most legends or myths, if they date within two generations of the claimed event, so a legend or someone wants to start a legend or myth, and if they begin that legend, even within two generations of the claimed date of the beginning of that myth, they never happen. They never, they never take. No one believes them. Somewhere to say, "My great-grandfather once did such and-such." Those legends they never take off. It has to be some, somewhere far away. Some, that's why when you go to a new high school and you're like, "Yeah, back in my high school, like I was like the star of every sport I was ever in." Or when you go to college, you can say that. And they're like, "Really, it's true." And they have the Internet, and you're like, "I was just kidding. Um, <laughs> but here's the story, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't, the apostles didn't leave and go to some other country and say, hey, some guy rose from the dead. They started that story in Jerusalem, in the city where it happened. Three days after it happened, they started telling this story. A couple of weeks after it happened, people were convinced because so many eyewitnesses had seen Christ rise from the dead. The last example, the last reason why you can believe that the resurrection is an historical event is not just what they saw, it's how they lived because that wasn't just new information for them. You know, for the reality, of course, is that a lot of times for us, we just want new information. Tell me something new about God. Tell me something new about Jesus. They didn't just let that data kind of reside in their brain. That news of the resurrection changed their lives. And you can see the evidence of this truth in how they lived. The apostles before Jesus rose from the dead, they were cowards. They argued amongst who was the greatest. They wanted to, they're scrambling ahead with ambition. They all... would would run and deny him even. After the resurrection, after they've encountered Jesus, risen from the dead, these people lived lives that were remarkably different. And you realize, Jesus isn't just one among many founders of religion. He is the one and only God who proves that he is God. And here's the last thing. Some of you, you've heard all these things. Like some of you have actually heard all these things from me and I use the exact same jokes. And you're like, seriously, dude, sharpen up. I'm like, I'm not that clever. So, This isn't new information for you. It doesn't have to be. Because here's the reality, is if you already knew this, if you already knew that Jesus is not one among many messiahs, he's not just one among many people who died, he's not one among many people who founded religions, but he's the one and only God, the question I have to ask, and no offense, is how come your life isn't changed by that information? Because Jesus doesn't just want to give us new information, he wants the resurrection, his being the one and only, to give us transformation. He wants to change us. And I have to ask the question, if I know that already, if this is not news for you, then why are you playing? You know, this is the last thing. I might have said that already. (laughs) My older sister, her name's Amy, and I've mentioned her before. She's married to a guy named Mark. His his nickname is Fire. And I just love it because when I was growing up, I get to say, like, ready, aim, fire, let's go. Um, Which always makes me laugh, and apparently me alone. I'm the one and only. Um, so at one point, Amy and Fire were dating. Um, they, Amy loved Fire so much. And Fire loved Amy a ton. So Amy broke up with him. And I was like, Amy, what are you doing? Why did you break up with Mark? She's like, well, I had to break up with him because you know, I loved him so much. I knew that if we just kept dating, we'd marry each other. <laughs> I'm like, are you a moron? <laughs> She's like, no, I just, I, need to get, I just need to get out and play the field. So she did for like, you know, six months, she kind of dated some people off and on and this and that. And there's a critical moment where the dad of one of her friends was like, she hadn't see, he hadn't seen her for a while and said, Amy, how's Mark doing? And Amy said, ah, oh, Jim, you know, we're not, we're not dating each other right now. And Jim said, Amy, I thought, I thought you guys were great together. And Amy says, no, I, I love him with everything. I, I think he's the best. I love him so much. But Jim, Jim, I got to get out there. I got to play the field. And this, this older man looked at my sister and said, Aim, hey, you know, if you're busy looking at, looking around to see what else is out there, you're going to miss the best thing right in front of you. If you're going to just keep looking for, you know, one among many guys you dated, that's nice, but you're going to miss out on the one and only. You're going you're to have a great time, but you're going to miss out on that one and only. And this is the thing, same thing with us. with us. We can keep playing games with Jesus. He keeps saying, well, maybe someone else is going to come along. Maybe, I mean, religions out there. I can realize that actually he's, he's claimed to be God. He's proven that he is God. He's not just one among many. He's the one and only. The only question remains this. Is Jesus for you and for me? Is he just going to be one among many parts of my life? Is all he going to be just a one among many things that are important in my life? Is Jesus just going to be another One among many, oh, yeah, I know about him. Or knowing that he is the Messiah. He is God. Are you going to give him permission to not just be one among many, but to be your one and only?